Welcome back to the Consumer Rights Talk. I'm your host, Adam Deutsch of Northeast Law Group in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening to the show. And to make sure that you get the latest episode every two weeks, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave us a review as well. It'll help other people find us. You can also follow me on Twitter at Adam Deutsch ESQ for updates about the podcast, upcoming guests, consumer law, and anything else on my mind. Today's guest is Michael Fuller, otherwise known as the Underdog Lawyer. This interview has got me fired up and filled with inspiration toward my own commitment to clients and love of practicing consumer rights law. Michael's a special lawyer. His background is unique, and we get to hear a lot about it in the interview. Not to give too much away, but Michael's ownership of the Underdog Lawyer persona is incredibly effective because he truly started as the Underdog. His youth was happy, but not easy, and there were a ton of obstacles that he had to overcome before becoming a lawyer. He actually has on his website a copy of a grade school uh, transcript, a report card, that is not exactly containing the type of grades that any of us would be particularly proud of, but he wears it like a badge of honor. And Michael actually gives back a ton to the community, and he goes and speaks regularly in schools out on the West Coast in Oregon, where he's located. And he brings a copy of that report card with him, and he holds it up, and he shows kids who may be struggling, who may have trouble at home, you can turn this around and you can become something. And he carries that into every single case with him, and it makes him an incredibly effective advocate. We talk a little bit about how to keep that fresh in your mind and how to build connection with clients. Today, Michael's practice is focused around representing consumers against large corporations. He has a substantial class action practice and is a partner at a law firm where most of the work centers around bankruptcy. That strategic partnership has helped the firm and Michael grow and bring great results to their clients. Of all the guests on this podcast, Michael probably has the strongest media persona. If you visit his website, underdoglawyer.com, you'll find more than two dozen videos from local and national news shows highlighting his work. We discuss media strategy and concerns during the interview, and Michael offers his perspective on using media to strengthen a case. Hint, he's not afraid of putting a client in front of the camera. And we talk about some of those risks, and you know, Michael gives some some really great tidbits on on how to uh, know whether your client's going to perform well, and that in some ways that's actually a key to having a good case because it tells you a lot about their ability to be truthful, consistent, and to hold up under pressure. Anyway, Make sure that you look at his website. It's remarkable. Those videos, that transcript, like I said, it, it just gives a lot of, of information. I've, I've thought about tweaking my own site, northeastlawgroup.com, to try and maybe mimic some of the things that he's done. You can also follow Michael on Twitter at Underdog Law Blog. Again, that's at Underdog Law Blog. He's regularly on there, active, and you'll learn a lot about his cases and his own form of advocacy. Lastly, uh, Michael definitely puts himself out there and is willing to be co-counsel or to speak with anyone, give advice, share some information about cases. So feel free. Uh, He is one very kind and uh, incredibly inspirational person. So make sure to follow him. And without further ado, let's get on with the interview. All right, so Michael Fuller, thank you for joining me all the way from the West Coast today. How are you doing? Excellent. So, uh, for those who don't know you, you are known to me as the underdog lawyer. I just love that URL. It's fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, self-proclaimed underdog lawyer. I actually trademarked it uh, a few years ago because I heard Morgan and Morgan had trademarked We the People. They sent my buddy a takedown letter because he had it on his website. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to run with it. I might as well trademark it and, uh, and brand it. So that's what I've done. And how did you decide on that? you know, title, that framework for you? You know, I originally was going to go with PDX Pitbulls because I have a deaf rescue pitbull and we're somewhat aggressive, uh, especially in the Portland market as far as consumer protection attorneys go. But I thought, you know, I don't really want to be known as being aggressive because that's, 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 you know, that's not necessarily the, the brand we're looking to create. And so, but I did, the 
one thing in common with me and my clients was that we're always the underdog. We're always expected to lose. Uh, we're always um, outmanpowered, usually outsmarted, uh, outfunded. And so I thought, you know, underdog lawyer, I kind of like that. And so um, people agreed, and so that's what we used. I mean, I love it. And based on reading, you know, a little bit about your background, there's no question that you have such an, an interesting story. And, uh, of course, the underdog title does fit your background. Can you give us a little bit of, of that background story to get a sense of you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, I'm sure a lot of people are tired of hearing about it. It's the first thing I put on my website just because it means so much to me. I grew up, you know, in a trailer park with a single mom, although my mom would say, why did she, she say, why do you always tell people it's a trailer park? She's like, it's a mobile home park, or it's a manufactured home park. I'd say, all right, fine, but... It was, it was, for all intents and purposes, a trailer park, and, and it was a fine childhood, but, you know, times were tough. We were on, you know, food stamps and government assistance, and no one in my family went to college. We didn't know any lawyers. We didn't know any professionals. Pretty much the richest guy that we knew was the guy who owned the bowling alley that my mom and um, a lot of my family worked at that I grew up in. And so on top of that, I was a horrible student, and I got held back in the first grade, and you know, kicked out of eighth grade and, repeat, you know, expelled, repeatedly kicked out of high school. So I spent a lot of time in that bowling alley. And I would watch Matlock with my grandma, and I would watch it. Um, when I was expelled, I would sit in the bowling alley back room and watch Matlock. And I just always wanted to be a lawyer. And I saw my cousin Vinny when I was a little bit older. And that pretty much inspired me to become a lawyer. And I just never thought it would happen. But every year went by. I was in high school and I graduated. I went to undergrad and I graduated. I applied to law school and I got pretty much a full ride because I grew up poor. And the next thing you knew, I passed the bar and I said, you know, I am never going to let this go to waste. Every single day I'm going to wake up and, you know, litigate my ass off. <laughs> and as if, you know, tomorrow I could wake up and not have this ability. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years is, is litigating for the underdog. That's amazing. So, I mean, did you go into, when did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? I think it was pretty early. I think it was like fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. I had watched it on TV, and I didn't really know what a lawyer did, but I watched Matlock, and, you know, I saw him hanging out with his friends, working from his house, eating hot dogs, going in and arguing to the judge, helping people, and so, and he wore a suit. And so I figured that's pretty much what the job entailed. And I've actually been able to structure it like that. That's kind of what I do now, I've, you know. I'm never the smartest person in the room. I'm not even a great arguer, for that matter. But I'm ambitious, and I fight hard, and I'm an advocate for my client, and I never give up, and I surround myself with really um, smart and talented people. And so that kind of is my life. Um, I, I work from home. I wear a suit. Um, I love what I do. I go to the courtroom. I make arguments. And, um, you know, just try to help people and help in my business usually means get them money or put them back where they were before they got ripped off. And I sue large corporations, the government, um, debt collectors, credit reporting agencies, tobacco companies, you know, you name it. It seems like you have a very broad practice in terms of the consumer protection realm. You know, a lot of lawyers really focus on, on one statute or another. Is there a particular area that you really started out with or have you always taken such a, a broad approach? No, I definitely took a super narrow approach. And my advice to new lawyers for the first five or six years of my practice was find a niche and master it. And that's what I did. And I actually mastered consumer bankruptcy protection litigation, which isn't really even a practice area. You wouldn't learn about it in law school. You wouldn't know any lawyers that did it. But across the country, there's a couple dozen of us that focus our practice on representing the poorest of the poor, people who file bankruptcy and then are getting abused in their own bankruptcy by creditors. They're either still getting collected against, their credit reports aren't right, they're getting blasted with collection calls, they're getting their wages still garnished, even though they filed bankruptcy. And so that was my specialty for the first several years of my practice. And I couldn't have imagined going outside of that practice area. And I kind of down in a way on attorneys that would just take any case because I thought, you know, I see the value I bring to these cases by knowing all the case law by heart and knowing how all the judges are going to rule pretty much and what their prior opinions were. But then I hit year like five to ten in this practice and I saw this uh, a great mentor. 
David Sugarman, and he used the term meatball law when someone asked him what he did, and I said, what is that? And he goes, well, we do whatever rolls in the door. <laughs> and basically, he takes a David and Goliath approach to litigation, and then it hit me, I don't have to just do this, and maybe I should still do this, because I'm really good at it, uh, and I shouldn't just jump into a new practice area without getting a mentor or getting co-counsel. But I started to explore consumer protection, and now, you know, 25% of my cases are employment law, whereas four years ago, I've never taken an employment case. We represent tenants. We represent people in student loan litigation. We represent inmates. We represent people in wrongful death cases. Uh, we have, you know, a wide variety of cases. Our focus is on important and interesting cases. And if it's important and interesting, and it's against a large corporation or the government, we're likely to take the case. Starting out in bankruptcy, you have a story on your website and your background that your mother went through a bankruptcy case. Did that inspire you to head in that direction? You know, I, I can't say that it did. Um, I, I wasn't interested in bankruptcy. My dad had filed bankruptcy twice. I think my mom filed at least once or twice growing up. And so I was aware what bankruptcy was, and I thought it was just when you've fallen on hard times and you can't pay your debts, you file a bankruptcy. Um, I started working at Olson Danes as a law clerk in 2007 because they had an attorney, Keith Carnes, and he was one of the few attorneys in the state of Oregon that was going after debt collectors. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, that these asshole debt collectors calling you, harassing you, making you feel like shit. And it was happening to me. Um, you know, because of student loans, even during law school, they, they try to call in a lot of those private student loans. And so I just thought it was so cool that he was suing these debt collectors. And so I went to work for Olson Danes, and I was there as a bankruptcy associate or a law clerk to the bankruptcy attorneys. But every every time I could, I would try to work with Keith and watch what he was doing. And it was, he did litigation and the bankruptcy attorneys were transactional lawyers. And I just immediately knew that I needed to do litigation. I wasn't cut out for, I had the work ethic for transaction work. But what I found was that all my bankruptcy clients, I just, I left their cases open forever because I was litigating everything. I would, you know, try to redeem cars. I would file adversary proceedings for stay violations. Um, I would take aggressive approaches for motions to turnover. And I realized I was just litigating all these cases. And so why not stop doing the transaction work and just get right into litigation? So I wasn't inspired to do it because I had a, a history of bankruptcy in my family. But... I think it did, I didn't have any stigma with bankruptcy. I didn't view it as, you know, good or bad, whether it's a corporation, a bank, or a person. You, know, you do what's in your best interest. And, um, and then I did actually come to really enjoy bankruptcy law. And I realized that, you know, bankruptcy comes to us from the Old Testament, and it's a biblical thing to do, if you're into that, to forgive debts. And then once I also realized, you know, you're helping people and it's morally the right thing to do, So that law clerk position, that was during law school you did that? Yep. Yeah, that was a 12 year. And then I continued. I've been with the same firm ever since, so 12 years now. Okay, so, so you're you're part of that firm, and then you also maintain uh, the separate website as well to try and drive traffic. Is that the deal? So originally, there was this kind of unspoken rule in bank with bankruptcy law firms. You know, the lifeblood of bankruptcy firms is clients walking in the door every day needing bankruptcy. And once you don't have that, you know, your firm goes away. And so bankruptcy attorneys were always really hesitant to refer out um, bankruptcy litigation issues to me because they said, oh, well, Mike Fuller's an attorney at Olson Danes. I'm not going to have my bankruptcy client call Olson Danes. It was never really done. Um, you just would never do it. And I knew that there wasn't enough litigation just within my firm's clients. I mean, my firm files more bankruptcies than anyone in Oregon, but I knew that even with our market share, there wasn't enough enforcement litigation to support a full-time attorney. And so my boss, Eric Olson, who also mentored me, he said, hey, I have an idea. What if you kind of hang your own shingle, create your own brand, and it's separate from Olson Danes. You're a partner at the firm, but then, it, and, and you keep separate files, separate books. That way there's no chance that somehow um, another bankruptcy attorney refers you an enforcement case and then they end up an Olson Dane's client. You keep you have your separate staff, separate operating systems. And so I did that and that's why we created Underdog Lawyer. And it's just kind of 
down from there. That's a really that interesting. Was the, that was the origin story. Yeah, that's a really interesting structure. I, I can't say that I've ever heard of anyone else doing it quite that way. No, and I haven't either. And I know that it does cause some confusion, not for the consumers. You know, my clients, they don't really give a shit what the corporate entity that employs me is. But it is, you know, it is interesting and it's almost one of a kind. Um, you know, I've been a partner at a firm for 10 years now. And, uh, and you know, I get a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, we file a lot of bankruptcies. We've filed over 40,000 bankruptcies in 1978. That's a lot of foot traffic. That's a lot of clients that need help on various legal issues. And, you know, generally people seem very happy with our bankruptcy service. And so a lot of my practice is people coming back one year, five years, 10 years later, or referring their friends who originated in our bankruptcy group. And now they need help with, you know, an employment issue or a tenant issue or a student loan issue. And they'll come to me through Olson Danes. And then I also, you know, I would say probably half of my business is people who come to me from referrals from other attorneys who know me as the underdog lawyer or who read about me in the paper as, you know, underdog lawyer. So it's, it's a split, but yeah, it's definitely interesting and unique. Um, but I think it's also very freeing as an attorney, you know, cause I'm a part, I get the best of both worlds. I'm a partner at a firm. I have that stability. I have that financing when it, cause you know, we do a lot of national class actions and they're very expensive cases and you need a firm with a bankroll uh, that underdog law office just doesn't have. Uh, but then I also have the freedom. I pretty much work nonstop. And so I've been able to set up a system where I can work from anywhere. I can make changes on my website um, in real time. I can set up class action um, websites and file class actions within within minutes, within hours, because I control um, I control every aspect of it. And you don't usually get that in a big firm where they're going to want you to use their you know their systems, their procedures. Olson Dance has given me great freedom uh, in the way that I run my my own little group, and you know I try to repay that just with dedicated service. And do you, do you have your own dedicated staff? Yeah, I do. We've got an associate and a paralegal and a couple of assistants. And, you know, we wouldn't, uh, we certainly wouldn't be where we are without them because it's easy for me to, you know, take an in, do an intake call or do the rainmaking thing and get a complaint on file and publicize it. And I show up at settlement conferences, but there's a lot of work as every lawyer, as every litigator knows, being done in the background. And so, you know, I've got a, a great team. Um, hand selected, and yeah, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we do without them for sure. When did you, when you started Underdog Law Office, that segment of it, was it as a true solo, or did you start out the gate nope. with the investment of hiring people? It's never been a true. No, it's never been a true solo ever. It's always been um, basically. I call it kind of a deep. It's basically legally more like a DBA. Like mm-hmm. the trademark's registered to me personally, but I have always. And I hope to always be a partner at Olson Danes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this underdog office is really just a gimmick or a moniker Understood. Uh, that I use. But the website, you know, I like my website. And, and I don't know if I even have it another way. I think I kind of got spoiled early on by the partners at Olson Danes kind of giving me that freedom. Because that's one thing I always said, you know, we, you know, as a lawyer, you know, you negotiate various things, whether it's benefits or salary or things like that. My main concern has always been freedom to take the cases I want to take and tell the stories I want to tell. And they've always given me that freedom. And so um, it helps that I'm able to manage my own web presence, do my own press conferences, uh, decide exactly what cases I'll take. And so that's kind of uh, part of the deal we've struck. But yeah, I'm definitely a partner to law firm, just like uh, most other um, most other lawyers. I guess most consumer protection attorneys, it seems about 50-50 whether they're firmed up or on their own. But I do get the best of both worlds because I, I manage my own schedule. I've never been asked to take a case that I didn't want to take or asked to do work I didn't want to do. So yeah, that's, that's good, that, good setup. that kind of freedom is fantastic. So taking that, that meatball approach, because you listed a broad array of, of the types of cases, a little bit of, of criminal work, you know, 25% employment litigation, obviously a lot of consumer rights litigation. How do you decide what you're going to take and what you're going to turn away? So we have two criteria, and that's it. Uh, and it's the way that I love it. And the criteria is a case must be interesting or a case must be important. If it's not interesting and it's not important, 
where we'll never take it. You know, we view this as, I view it as my life's work. And so if I wanted to just make money or, you know, rack of billable hours, I could do that and make a lot more of it on the other side. The reason I got into this business was, you know, to help people, but also just to really be a part of something important and something interesting. And at the end of the day, whether, you know, whether you die tomorrow or you get disbarred or you retire as a practicing lawyer at 90, I want to be able to say I, I went to work every day and made a difference and I moved the needle where I wanted to move it, which is taking from the rich and giving to the poor. And so that's our only screening criteria. When you look at the underdog law office handbook, the very first thing it says is mission statement, take important and interesting cases. And so that's our sole focus. So we don't do anything that we don't consider interesting or important. Interesting. So how, how do you structure, given that there's such a wide array of the types of cases, obviously some are operating under the fee-shifting realm. You're doing class action work, which I'm going to assume is on a contingency basis typically. And then it sounds like maybe there's some hourly work as well. Do you try and strike a particular division in how you approach that? Well, because of the tax consequences of doing hourly work, like in FDCPA, which is debt collection litigation, or uh, FCRA, there's we used to do a lot more hourly, where we're not billing, we're not charging by the hour, right? But we're billing by the hour, and so we'd end up in scenarios though where the client, you know, the law says the client can get reasonable attorney fee plus a thousand dollars if you prove a violation, and so we prove the violation. And, you know, our time would be like 10000 bucks, and the client would get 1000 And I was fine with that. That was a deal that we struck with our clients. But then we started realizing that the clients are getting, in a lot of cases, they're getting tax bills on, on, on $11,000, and they're only getting 1000 And so even though that's a more profitable business model, we almost exclusively now do um, contingency or common fund fees, where our, even if the fees are 10000 and the client's recovery is 1000 we take we take 45%. And then that way, at least the client's not losing money on the case. And that's not always true, but that's, you know, and we hire tax people every year to kind of advise us. Um, and that's not always true. Like with employment claims, certain employment claims, that's not the tax consequence. And so we'll take certain employment claims by the hour where we're not, we've never taken a dime from anybody uh, as far as getting paid up front. But we will bill by the hour and so on an employment claim for somebody who makes $30,000 a year and was fired. I have no problem, you know, getting them a year's worth of payback. That's what they're entitled to. And if my fees are 500000 that's the work I put into it, well, then that's fine because they don't get taxed on it. Got it. But almost all of our cases now are contingency. And that really does, it, it really limits you in the, in the types of cases you can bring because at the end of the day, or you're just going to have to, you know, give up a significant amount of your fees. But we it, we just had, you know, I think I had two clients come back to me on a fee-shifting case and just say, hey, you know, I know you put in your fee agreement that I was going to have a tax consequence, but I didn't expect this. And it, it just feels like shit, you know, because you're out there fighting for them and then they end up owing more money than it was worth. So, yeah, we do almost exclusively contingency these days. It's really interesting. I mean, obviously, this is a topic that comes out a lot. I mean, every NCLC conference I've gone to has a session on, you know, these tax consequences from fee-shifting cases. But I I can't say that I've ever heard anyone necessarily take this direct approach. So I I appreciate you sharing it. But I've also never, you know, I've thought a lot about it and I've discussed it with my clients, but I can't say that any of them have ever actually gotten hit with the tax bill at the end of the year. So it's interesting to hear that you've directly seen that feedback as well. Yeah, I did. I mean, um, I won't reveal the client name because that aspect of the case, I guess, is confidential. But it was a case where we went to trial and we beat Wells Fargo. And my client got $4,000 and the attorney's fees were 60 thousand. I think the judge awarded us like 38000 And my client got a, got a tax bill for the entire amount. And not only that, it affected my client's ability to receive federal benefits for that year. So after that, you know, it was so great to beat Wells Fargo and then to have it end up like that, uh, it was really a lesson learned. And that was a long time ago. That was probably eight, eight years ago or so. But ever since then, yeah, we've, we, we go to the, um, the NACA and NCLC um, conventions every year. And we're always, you know, hoping to learn a new strategy to help our clients with these really unfair tax consequences. But unfortunately, 
harm and there's no injury at all, that unless it's one of those narrow exceptions, you're going to get taxed on the full amount of fees, whether it's done by assignment or whether it's paid directly to the lawyer. And there's Commissioner B. Banks and there's some Supreme Court opinions and some Ninth Circuit authority that leave a little wiggle room. But then it's always like, well, you know, now I'm having to advise the client, hey, you know, don't worry, we got your back if we get in a tax fight with the IRS and we end up in tax court for the next 10 years. You know, that's not too appealing either. So we just haven't found a great solution to the problem. And, and it's, an, it's an issue as well. I mean, it goes to show just how little uh, power we as consumer protection lawyers have in Congress because this is clearly an absurd result. And it's obstructing the congressional intent of all of these consumer protection statutes that have been passed. And yet it goes on, and it's gone on for the last eight or ten years, and nobody seems to have any political capital to do anything about it. So, um, but you know, that's that's underdog law. So that's what we signed up for. So it's not, you know, it's not surprising, but it is disappointing, and I would hope that it's not always going to be that way. Well, I think you're right on all points there. You know, the the only alternative method that I've seen is this one IRS guidance opinion. So it's it's not even particularly binding, but that uh, if you coke, you know, there's an exception for legal services for nonprofits that recover the fees. And so there's this opinion floating out there that if you co-counsel with a legal services, that the client, even though you as a for-profit law corporation, uh, the client would get the benefit of the nonprofit waiver of the tax liability. You know, that's fascinating. And it, you know, one way or the other, you know, I am, I am interested in the idea of nonprofit legal services. And we do a lot of work with 20% of our cases are pro bono. And mm-hmm. a lot of those are done in conjunction with our local legal aid. But that is fascinating. Uh, and I wonder, you know, I, I'd be curious to see how that how those cases develop and how that theory develops because something has to be done. It's just why pass all these consumer protection laws and then allow the, the tax system to just thwart them like this. It just doesn't, you know, it's absurd. Right, right. So I want to ask, um, you know, are, are there any particular cases right now that you have uh, ongoing that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I mean, we got a lot of exciting cases to me. Sure. <laughs> Those are some of the cases that I'm 
there's a, a ton of success stories, uh, you know, shown on your on your website. Is there anything that really stands out as the thing you're most proud of? Um, the case I'm most proud of, I, and it, it sticks in my mind, uh, isn't, it was subtle confidentially, so I won't reveal the bank, but this just is kind of like uh, symbolic of our practice because it's a case where we didn't get paid anything and we couldn't even file any lawsuits. It was an elder abuse case by a bank that people would have heard of, but banks are exempt from Oregon's elder abuse laws. And this woman, 92-year-old widow, she had... Um, her husband died. She was moving into an assisted living facility, and she had I don't know, thirty to forty thousand dollars in savings. And she went to the bank, and they put her in these low interest CDs, which is fine, but the maturity date was ten years out, <laughs> and the pre the cancellation penalty to cash them in was like several hundred dollars. And they didn't just give her one; they give her like they I forget what it's called. There's a term for it, but they gave her like twelve different financial products, mm-hmm. none of which were of any value to her. And then she needed to cash them out. And they wanted to charge her several thousand dollars. And she happened to be the mother-in-law of a senior named partner of one of the big commercial litigation firms in town. And that person called me and said, hey, Mike, you know, I sent them a cease and desist letter. They told me to pound sand. Not sure what can be done here, but this isn't right. And so even though we couldn't go to court, we uh, put up a bill. My firm has a huge billboard for our bankruptcy practice right on the freeway here in Oregon. Mm-hmm. So we put up this lady's picture and you know, said, why is this bank, you know, financially abusing this woman? And I contacted a lot of their business partners. I started a Twitter campaign and poured thousands of dollars into a promoted Twitter campaign to let their business partners know exactly how they're treating this lady. Uh, I was preparing to hold a rally in the streets of downtown Portland for her. And I just kept mounting the, the social pressures on this company. And they originally you know, told me, too, they're like, well, I'm not going to do anything about it. We followed our policies. That's that. And then, lo and behold, you know, as we were getting ready to hold a rally outside of their downtown bank branch, they just had a change of heart and decided to do the right thing. So that's what I'm most proud of because it didn't use any of my skills as a lawyer. It used my, my skills as an advocate. And then it was just hard work and determination. I was not going to be beaten by this bank and I was not going to let them abuse this lady. And I lost money, a lot, you know, quite a bit of money actually on the case. And that's fine because uh, that's what I'm proud of that type of underdog advocacy for this, you know, if you're not out there protecting 92-year-old widows, you know, when they need it, then are you really using, you know, your your license to practice law to its fullest potential? And, and we make a lot of money on some cases, and that's fine, but that's that's the case that I'm most proud of, if I had to think of one. I wish you could see the grin on my face. I mean, that that's amazing, that story. And I, I, I love, no, I, I love that attitude. I, I think that that is really what advocacy means right and and it's rare that people pursue it to that length and you should be proud of that that's fantastic well thanks and it reminds you know i grew up i just i would watch um the godfather every day after school almost every day and godfather too and so that kind of you know i realize now all the stuff you grow up on the stuff you just watch over and over and over it does kind of shape how you how you live your life, especially if you know I'm I'm less than lucky to kind of have the options. You know, on the, I have a somewhat comfortable lifestyle. Cause I'm a lawyer now. It's not like I'm in the trailer park anymore, and I can kind of create the life that I want in a way. And it just it also just reminds me of that. You know, the value that the Godfather brought to his community. You know, go to the police, you go to the courts. They can't do shit for you. You're a little old lady that nobody cares about, but you can come to us, and we know how to return a favor. And we didn't really do anything, but we got her money back. And, you know, it, it, it repays itself because a lot of people in the community saw, because I, I formed a whole team in the community. And it involved teams that, I told you, the person that referred her was, you know, a senior name partner at a creditors or at a big commercial law firm. And so, you know, yeah, we, we lost money on it, but I don't, we probably really didn't lose money on it because we got a reputation as shit. These guys are either insane or they're just stubborn, but, you know, Let's just give them what they want and move on. And in, in a way, that's kind of lawyering. We're representing people who can't even afford to hire us against billion-dollar companies that don't give a shit about them, and we need to make it right. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's extra, extra special to me because it also reminds me of kind of like the Godfather story where he was there in the community, and he was there for help when you had no one else to turn to. 
one of the uh, most common themes that I notice among successful attorneys that you know really do a lot of litigation and, and go to trial is this ability to uh, really connect on a human level to understand their client's story and then convey it. And I've I've recognized that you certainly have that gift, and and it seems to me that a big part of it is the way that you embrace some of the challenges that you grew up with. I know that you go and talk to a lot of high schools and you say, look, here's a copy of my, you know, transcript when I had absolutely horrific grades. And look, you can actually become this and, you know, look at the good that's being created in the world now. And I I love that, that you, you keep that, you know, at your fingertips and really connect to it. What do you recommend? Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I try to, but but you know, the the question is, for someone who who doesn't necessarily have that kind of deep background, do you have any advice for how how to try and really connect with that? Is there something that you have to work for to maintain that in your recent memory, as opposed to the distant past? Right now that you've moved well beyond that phase of your life. You know, a lot of people would bury it, would let go of it and say, that's behind, I'm a new person now. You hold on to it as a piece of you, and it clearly is a motivating factor in your ability to represent people and your ability to connect not only with your clients, but also with with juries. Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, uh, Trini Robert Lay, um, who's also on Twitter and who I would love to listen to you interview, um, he's who we use for most of our jury trials. Um, He's a... Yeah. How long are you going to keep focused on all this bad shit that you that you remember from your childhood? But it reminds me also, there was an attorney, Bruce Rothman, I don't think he'll ever hear this, um, and it was a fascinating thing he told me, but I was interviewing him for a pro bono spotlight, and he's, he was an excellent, uh, he did pharmaceutical litigation, class action litigation, he was a mentor to one of my mentors. But anyway, I was asking him, you know, where'd you get this passion to fight? Um, and he told me that he grew up and he got um, picked on and that there were these kids and this kid, which he remembers being pinned down and, the, and Bruce isn't a very big guy, pretty small guy actually. And he said he remembered being a kid and when this other bully in the playground sat on top of him and would just pound on his chest and pick on him. And he said that that was kind of a turning point in his life and he decided he was never going to be picked on like that again. And I thought, you know what, this guy's in his 60s, he's, he's reached the highest peaks of this business. And he still remembers that. And so that kind of made me realize, you know, it's okay to kind of, you don't have to be embarrassed of, you know, your origin story or why you got into this. And in fact, if you embrace it, you know, it can actually be a weapon and you can weaponize, you know, growing up poor and you can weaponize getting picked on because with the law degree, you have the power to change things. And I'm sure, I, I'm sure there's plenty of opposing counsel that are like, boy, this guy's a fucking maniac. Mm-hmm. What's this guy's problem? Like, what, why is he so, you know, passionate? Or why is he so, you know, what is going on here? And so I'm sure they wish I would just focus more on, you know, my comfortable lifestyle and, you know, the profitability of my firm. But, you know, I, I keep the focus where I think it should be, which is my passion. And, and you know, you know it, I, I would hate to have a, a passionless career or a passionless job. You know, a lot of people, they like traveling or, you know, they, you know, they like all sorts of various things. My sole focus is this, this career, this litigation, protecting consumers, doing what's right, fighting back, taking from the rich. And so it's also a hobby. And I don't think I'd enjoy it as much if I didn't connect it to my youth because every day I wake up and I think, boy, isn't it crazy that I'm a lawyer? Like, even every day when I put on a suit, I'll look in the mirror and think, look at me, I'm putting on a suit, I can't believe it. Same thing when I go to court, I think it's just amazing, like, I'm in here as a lawyer, like, hard to believe, like, (laughs) they call it, like, imposter syndrome, some people say, I don't view it as a bad thing, I think it's great, I'm, you know, it just makes me really happy, and so, uh, but, you know, I probably could tone it back a bit in ways, because, you know, like I said, I talk to my shrink all the time, and every now and then I will lose my cool, or I will do something that I wish I didn't do. I think everybody probably has that in their career. And one thing that we've tied it back to with my shrink is that, well, you feel like people are picking on you like when you were a kid. 
lash out or you do things that if you had more time to think you wouldn't do. So there is a balance there, but I think it brings tremendous value to my practice uh, and it's it's the source of my passion. Uh, look, I, I think it, from the outside, you know, I, I haven't seen you up close and personal so much, but I think it definitely adds value. Uh, there's another area that I see, you know, you, you do an awful lot of press work and I've heard different theories on this and I'm curious if you've ever had, um, you know, a, a negative repercussions of doing interviews on film or, or in writing, et cetera. I've had, um, including uh, Wells Fargo, but I've had a lot of different adversaries that will bring it to the judge's attention. That's less so these days. I think it's a lot more acceptable now to talk about your cases and advocate um, advocate for your clients in public. But it wasn't always that way. And I remember in 2012 or 13, one Wells Fargo attorney, you know, basically took all the Twitter stuff and all the LinkedIn stuff, and they put it in the court's file and tried to. Sh- basically blame me for advocating for my client and say this was attorney-driven litigation and he's, he's malicious and he's attacking us. I think Wells Fargo's reputation got the better of him. Uh, at the end of the day, nobody seemed to care about it. But yeah, I've had it used against me a few times. Uh, I've had to hire, I constantly have a legal ethicist, Mark Vasily, basically on retainer, who I call whenever I have um, ethical issues due to media and advocacy. It comes up probably once a week where I'm, consulting um, legal ethics, it puts me a little bit closer, you know, to face it, you know, there's, there's very rigid professional rules about what you can say about a case uh, in the public. And, you know, I, I do my absolute best, but I'm representing clients with their backs against the wall. They have no voice. And the companies I sue, they're out there spending millions and millions of dollars trying to create a public image. And if I happen to know that what they're doing behind the scenes doesn't match up with what they're telling everyone, I feel obligated to let the public know that. Mm-hmm. And it's right in my services agreement. I told my clients, if you want somebody to write a letter and to try to get you money, then go hire somebody else. I'm here to tell stories. I'm here to write wrongs. I'm here to hold corporations accountable. I'm not interested. I, that's why I feel. I can't remember the last demand letter I've ever sent because I'm not in it for that reason. Now, sure, I'm happy to settle a case for my client once we've exposed the truth. But, you know, it's just um, that telling that story and exposing those truths is a very important part of my practice. And so clients that retain me usually retain me for that purpose. They have a story to tell. They feel shut down and dismissed. Uh, and, and they're looking for some, you know, a true advocate to help them tell their story. But, yeah, it's... Uh, What about your clients? Do you let them talk to the press? Do you have rules about that? I have rules about that. My general rule is that if you're hiring me, it's because we're telling a story, and it's an important story. And you're going to have to tell that story in your deposition, and you're going to have to tell that story at trial. If you don't want to do that, hire somebody else, because that's what we're in the business of doing. And so if you sign up with me, I tell my clients, and it's in my services agreement, I would encourage you to talk to the press. Tell them the truth about what happened to you is all I tell them. And I don't monitor those interviews. And I've had, you know, I think reporters kind of appreciate that, that, you know, reporters will call me when they see our case announcements and I'll tell them about the legal aspect of things and all. maybe they just want to know, oh, how old is your client or this or that. But then I, with client permission, of course, I put them right in touch with my client. I say, you know what, call my client, ask them what happened. And it also helps to vet my cases because I don't trust a client who's not comfortable uh, or willing to tell their story. You know, as every plaintiff lawyer knows, some defense lawyers probably think happens more often than not, but some plaintiffs aren't honest people and they are looking to cash in or take advantage of a situation. And you can really minimize that when you, you know, you vet them yourself, your office vets them, you have a private investigator vet them. I'll even have my clients, certain clients, when it's a he said, she said, take lie detector tests. That's worked particularly well. Uh, and then I'll have them, you know, interviewed by the New York Times and interviewed by the Oregonian and interviewed by Willamette Week. So if you can tell me your story and you can tell my investigator and my staff your story, maybe you even take a polygraph and then you can tell your story to three different investigative reporters. And they're not playing softball. They're not looking to just do 
love pieces. They want to know what happened. And if you can tell your story through all that, I think the odds are you're going to make you know, a great trial witness and you're probably also much more likely to be telling the truth. It's the clients I worry about that they want it all done. On, you know, they don't want anybody to know about it and they don't want to tell their story. That's fine. Maybe they're just, maybe that's just not the type of person they are. I refer those people out. I'm not interested in that. It takes so much faith for you and your clients. It's remarkable that you have that level of trust and I think that they must truly appreciate it. Well, and some clients don't come back when I, when sure. I explain that. I mean, that's another thing, you know, you learn as a lawyer is that everybody kind of has their experience and they see things how they, you know, remember them. Um, this process brings out the truth in a case and it does it pretty early. And, and it's unfortunate because sometimes, you know, a client will have like a criminal issue in their background or something that the media will choose to latch on to that's not pertinent to the case. And I do feel bad in those instances, but you know what? That's as a result of their circumstances in their life. And, you know, all I can do is let them know that, hey, you're going to be put under a microscope here. They're going to call you, and not just they, you know, the opposing attorney and their client are going to call you a liar, cheater, and a thief. They think I'm a greedy plaintiff's lawyer. And guess what? The jury's not going to be too much different. The jury's not going to appreciate us hauling them away from their work and their families, all 30 of them, for three to five days to put on a trial over this. So it's got to be important. We've got to be telling the truth. Um, looking ahead, are there particular areas of law that you are excited to see where the trends are going over the next few years? I think data security is really fascinating, and I'll be interested to see if plaintiff's lawyers are a part of how we solve these issues with data security, and then also with um, communication privacy. I'll be interested to see if plaintiff's lawyers play a part in how we address um, communication privacy. And so that's what interests me. Right now, the law is really undeveloped. We do data breach litigation, and we've done, you know, we've done quite well, honestly, uh, under the laws as they sit. But they, the laws could be a lot better in those areas. And then also, you know, the United States Constitution just, you know, they say there's a right to privacy in there, but it's not written in there. And then when you look at the First Amendment, you know, there's really what there is is really strong protections for freedom of speech, speech and expression. And so I think it'll be interesting how lawyers play a role in developing, you know, the compromise between communication privacy and then also, you know, the First Amendment right to free speech and expression. So those are two areas where I think it'll be interesting. So I don't know. It's very possible that as society we uh, resolve those issues without using the plaintiff's bar. You know, the plaintiff's bar has been instrumental in civil rights, in, um, you know, certainly debt collection and credit reporting, um, fair housing. We'll see if you know society and the community chooses to tap you know plaintiffs' attorneys to address these these two emerging issues. And I wanted to ask about one case that I I saw looking through the the feed on that underlaw lawyer website, and um, this is the free Burger King for life case. <laughs> so there's actually something called Pop Up Magazine, and they do like uh, they tour the United States, and it's like music and spoken word and true stories and they actually just did a full interview on us and our client on that case did they that case was fun <laughs> it was a fun case i got a call on new year's morning i was having brunch with my family and i said i'm gonna take this call and I, which i almost always do and i stepped outside and he told me the story and i was instantly hooked because i said you know what this is right out of a seinfeld episode i love seinfeld <laughs> and so um you know, they promised him free burgers for life, and then he went in there, and then they wouldn't honor it. So I knew it was going to be kind of a fun case and that it would get some attention. I had no idea it would get all the attention that it did get. And, you know, they paid us every dime that we asked for. I got my client a full recovery. So that's pretty good, um, considering. And I think it was a lesson learned for everybody. Um, and, you know, the real issue in the case that caused the whole thing was that he got locked in this dang bathroom for over an hour. And they laughed at him. They gave him a clothes hanger to try to let himself out. They took, you know, they finally called a locksmith as a last resort. And so then to make up for that, they offered him free food for life whenever he came into that burger king. And then they honored that for a few weeks at least. And then eventually they told him, hey, management says we can't keep honoring the free, um, the free burgers for life deal that we struck. And so... We filed a complaint for breach of contract, 
mm-hmm. which they did argue. And yeah, we settled it. So that was kind of a fun case. And I guess, like I said, you know, you kind of, what you grow up on kind of, um, you know, I, I grew up on Seinfeld and I grew up loving Jackie Childs and I grew up right. <laughs> really right. enjoying those interests. And in law school, you know, I don't know if you have the same case book I did, but that guy that sued Pepsi to get his free Harrier jet because he'd saved all the Pepsi points mm-hmm. on that commercial, they said, yes. if you present us with enough points, you can get, you know, a jet out of it. I, I thought that was, you know, I, I didn't know how I would have decided that if I was on the jury, but I thought that was fascinating. So anytime I can be a part of a fascinating legal issue, I'm probably going to do it. So your client didn't have that or in the middle of the offer from the other side. He said, I'll take it. <laughs> right. No, he didn't. But, okay. um, yeah, I was also thinking of the, uh, the Mochaccino case where Kramer right. settled for unlimited Mochaccinos, and then they were, they were limiting his ability to, to get them because he wanted to give them to his friends. And right, also right. there was that Seinfeld where, uh, what was it? I think Kramer, Elaine said something like, boy, I'd do anything if they're the person who could fix my back. That's right. Newman mediated it, and Newman uh, awarded Kramer the bike. That's right. <laughs> so I, yeah, I've been a big Seinfeld fan. So when I saw when I heard that fact pattern, I thought, oh, yeah, I got to, I got to. Life, sure. life imitating art. I love it. Well, thank you, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Is there anywhere that uh, do you want to throw out any websites, Twitter handles, anything that you want people to follow and look you up, or anything like that? Uh, Now's a good time. At Twitter, we're Underdog Law Blog. Follow us if you want to. It's mostly litigation-based news and uh, my consumer protection slant. We announce most of our um, cases on Twitter. So, yeah, Underdog Law Blog um, on Twitter or underdoglawyer.com if you're interested in co-counseling. We do state and national class actions. Um, We we take with the lower cases from across the country. We specialize in prosecuting Wells Fargo. So... Uh, phone number is 503 is our direct line, so you can call at any time if you have any questions. Thank you so much.